Hi, this is Star Wars author Delilah S. Dawson, and you're listening to Clashing Sabers Network. Here we go again. Sure. We're home. I bypassed the compressor. You were the chosen one! Something truly special. Congratulations. You are being rescued. Revenge is not the Jedi way. I am no Jedi. The ability to speak might not make you intelligent, but we're going to try to prove otherwise. This is the Clashing Sabers podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandon, and I'm here with my good friend. He is the anti-Perrin. It's Mark. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping for um, Neomos DJ extraordinaire, but any anything that's anti-Perrin is okay with me. I think those things are the same thing. <laughs> I don't know. Perrin might know how to lay down some sick tracks because he's he's been to quite a few parties. You can tell because of the hair. Yeah, he's a party boy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Well, Mark, thank you for joining us today to uh, to talk about Andor episode seven, the announcement. Um, My pleasure. Before we get into that, just a couple of quick housekeeping announcements for us here at Clashing Sabers. First of all, uh, for Andor, we are going to be covering the show based on arcs. Being that the seventh episode is kind of a standalone, we're covering it on this solo episode. And then between Sith Talk and ourselves here at the flagship show, there will be coverage of uh, 8, 9, and 10 as one arc, as they all go together, and the finale as another arc. So we're hoping this gives you uh, more complete coverage of the show, getting to have uh, more of a full story, which kind of fits what we do uh, here a little bit more. In the meantime, we do still have episodes dropping, including some Don't Burn the Sacred Text and uh, a Clashing Saber High Republic Phase 1 show that will be coming out um, after this one. So looking forward to that and uh, looking forward to our annual fundraiser. Uh, we usually do it about around Christmas time, but we're going to be do it at the beginning of, uh, of 2023. And that is going to help us raise money to put Star Wars books into classrooms across the country. So if you want more info on that, just make sure you are subscribed uh, wherever you're listening. Uh, We'll definitely announce it on here and on our socials. And uh, our main hub over at ClashingSabers.net is where you can find anything you need. So now that that's out of the way, Mark, what the hell are you Star Wars in lately? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, my my world is consumed with Cassian and or right now. Um, but what I've been doing and, uh, and enjoying is watching as much of, you know, catching any uh, YouTube videos or anything, uh, you know, any anybody's re- reviews or their takes or their did you catch this thing kind of videos. Because I find that like because this show is so rich. There are tons of things that you that I often miss while, while watching the episode. So I, I like going and watching these videos to where they sort of point out the Easter eggs, and I'm you know I, I get to learn about all these obscure items in Luthan's shop that you know it's like oh that's from from the old Republic, and oh that's from uh, the Force Unleashed, and there's a Gungan shield, and you know it's just it's just, just a treasure trove of of cool things to discover um and a lot of really great analysis videos too a lot of a lot of stuff that you know that we really like to do here at clashing sabers it seems like there's a whole lot more of that content out there right now in fandom and it's kind of kind of inspiring to watch yeah it's definitely encouraging i mean definitely when i started this network that was kind of what i 
you know, wanted it to be. And there were a few other shows out doing that where not so much focusing on the news, but focusing on analysis of the story and stuff like that. And you're right, it, it has blown up uh, quite a bit over the last uh, four or five years. And it's been pretty, pretty cool to watch. Um, and I love I love like the Easter egg videos like you were talking about, because honestly, like that's how I learn stuff like that is a, how I learn about a lot of Star Wars history. Because they'll be like, this is Starkiller's uh, costume in The Force Unleashed. But then they'll like go into, you know, what The Force Unleashed was and stuff like that. And it's like, all right, I, I have a framework now to, to talk with people who played those games and grew up reading the books and everything like that, which is a pretty cool opportunity to have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I know this is kind of like super early to do this because we are halfway through season one of Andor we still have like a lot of time left to go but I'm kind of curious because I know how high you are on Andor right now if you were ranking the Star Wars live action shows one through four uh you got Andor what we have so far you have Mandalorian uh Book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan Obi-Wan thank you so you've got those four shows Starting at four with no explanations, what order do you rank these these shows in? So I go four to one? Go four to one. So start with your least favorite to, to your favorite. Well, as a caveat, and if you ask me about my ranking of movies, I will usually, like I tend to say the same thing. Just because it's at the bottom of the list doesn't mean I don't like it. It just means there's a whole lot more at the top of the list that I like even more. So generally I have really enjoyed all of the shows at, you know, to some degree or another. Um, some I might have more quibbles with than others. And that's probably why I rank them the way I do. But for the most part, I've been pretty happy with all the live action shows. Um, so I say number four would be Boba Fett. And number three would be Obi-Wan. Um, Obi-Wan probably would have been higher if I felt like the production values were at the same level as, say, The Mandalorian, which is number two. And Andor is number one, and let me say, by a wide margin. Really? Yes, it's a very wide margin. Now, having said that, the reason I like The Mandalorian is because it kind of, it, to me, it's the fun part of Star Wars. It's the pulpy kind of, you know, Western style gunslinger themed fun aspect of Star Wars. Whereas Andor is just, Andor is just my jam. I mean, it is just the, the show that I've been able to sink my teeth into and just really spend lots and lots of time thinking about episodes after they're over and seeking out conversations to have because I want to talk about the show so much. Um, that has not happened for any of the shows, really. I mean, I've, I've had episodes where I was excited and wanted to talk about the thing that happened or the big surprise or whatever, but then I generally don't dwell on them. I'm, I'm on to the next thing. Um, Andor sits with me, and it's not it's gotten into my head in a way that few Star Wars stories have. See, that's, that's really exciting because for me... Um it would be Andor at number four. Hmm. And then Book of Boba Fett, Obi-Wan, and Mandalorian. Uh, there's a... 
it's looking like Andor is going to jump ahead of Book of Boba Fett, but the last two episodes of that show are absolutely insane, like the fun Star Wars that you're talking about. It gave me Luke and Ahsoka on the same screen. Like, it Yeah. it, it yeah. has... But it has also, you know, and I was talking with Lindsay about this, was, uh, which is what brought it up in my mind. We've only got part of this story, right? Like, I'm yeah. able to compare the beginning of Andor to the end of Book of Boba Fett, which is an unfair comparison for a show that had, you know, time to set stuff up and everything. But right. Andor is, like, it's insanely good. Like, it, it's almost like unfair how good it is in a weird way like are we breaking rules like is star wars allowed to be this good <laughs> like you know i feel I mean? like yeah and i don't know exactly what you mean i feel like there a mold has been broken it, it feels like we've crossed over into like we should be getting we shouldn't be getting this yeah <laughs> but, but we are and it's, it's almost like, like a, walking out of uh last jedi you know and yeah you walk out and you're just like that was an art house movie in star yeah. Wars. Yeah. And this yeah. is it's, kind of the same thing. It's like, what? how are we? It's, it, yeah, it's being elevated to, to a level that I don't think we're accustomed to seeing. And that's not a knock on the previous star Wars. I mean, a cynical person would look at the writing in Andor and compare it to the writing and the dialogue in the prequels and make some crass joke, but the prequels weren't trying to be Andor. They were trying to be the sort of Flash Gordon, borderline kitschy throwback to Saturday morning matinees. And Lucas admits that he's not a great dialogue writer. Right. But... It's just like this is what what gets me so excited about it is that we are living in an era where we can get so many different kinds of stories. And so it's not like one has to like be the one that everybody holds up and says, well, they should all be this way, because now these storytellers are able to play in this great sandbox. And now we're really seeing the fruits of that. We're seeing the directors who want to play with their action figures and have fun with them. And then you're seeing the other storytellers who want to come in and like, just use the galaxy as the backdrop for the story they want to tell that just happens to be in star Wars. And I think it's like the best of all worlds. Yeah, it really is. It feels like at least on the TV side of things, Lucasfilm is taking advantage of everything that they have at their disposal uh, in both like the technology, but also in the stories that you can tell with Star Wars, right? We've got one show shot almost exclusively in the volume in in Obi-Wan. We've got another show in Mando that created the volume and revolutionized things, but also can still be believable uh, on practical sets. You have Book of Boba Fett, which is essentially a spin-off show uh, and a Western um, kind of vibe, you know, very classic uh, Star Wars in that aspect. And then you have something like Andor that it's like, it makes perfect sense that we're getting this kind of spy espionage, political jockeying story in Star Wars because that's Star Wars. But it's still, it's so different and new and like you said, breaking the mold that, I mean, it's just really exciting to me, the potential 
that this creates because it's getting such a good reaction. So I think, you know, you're talking about breaking the mold. This could be the opportunity for Lucasfilm to go, maybe we do do multiple different things. Maybe we don't have to be one thing. Maybe we don't have to be one type of book. Maybe we don't have to be one type of movie. Maybe we don't have to be one, like, we can expand and we can go into these arenas that we haven't gone before because Star Wars is the perfect backdrop for, for any of those. Yeah, I mean, we're only half, a little over halfway through this season, and I already feel like I've watched an entire season of a show because of just how densely packed all the episodes are with just relevant stuff to the story. And to think, like, if they just, they could do just a one-season one-off of a story that's only like 12 episodes, and it's just that limited series that's done in this style, and it tells one kind of story at one time period. I, you know, I just I just think there's this opens up so many possibilities for... And I think it opens up a lot of possibilities for the for the kinds of storytellers and directors and writers who maybe didn't think of Star Wars before, but they've seen what Tony Gilroy's doing, and they're like, you know, maybe I you know I see what he's going for here. Maybe I could tell my stories in Star Wars, you know, using Star Wars as a backdrop. Yeah, yeah, it could be. It, this could be opening an, an entire uh, Pandora's box of of potential stories happening in Star Wars, but. This episode in uh, in episode seven was insanely packed. Uh, we have a lot to discuss. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into full spoilers on episode seven, the announcement. I've been wondering all day how I could be sure of confiding in you. I don't know what we're talking about. It's a lie. The Mon Mothma people think they know. It's a lie. It's a projection. It's a front. I've learned from Palpatine. I show you the stone in my hand. You miss the knife at your throat. Well, I have an announcement, and that is that we are going to talk about the announcement. That had to be said. (laughs) I hate myself a little bit for saying it, but here we are, living in the hate. Anakin would be proud. But we are not talking about Anakin Skywalker. We are talking about Cassian and Andor, and Cassian and Andor has a lot going on. So we kind of were looking at this episode and it feels like being, you know, this is like a turning point episode and it's, it's very clearly broken up into these four segments of characters. You have Cassian uh, and his story. You have uh, Deidre Miro in the ISB story. You have the Mon Mothma Luthan story and you have Cyril Karn and they all even though they're starting to, to intertwine a little bit, they're all very segmented right now. And so we kind of wanted to break it up like that to, to kind of guide our discussion. So we're going to start with uh, Cassian. And Mark, you were mentioning that Cassian is the one that you have the most notes on. So I just want to start by saying what stood out to you uh, in this episode about Cassian and his journey. The main thing that stood out to me the very first thing that occurred to me after watching this episode, uh, and before I get into that, so I'll, I'll we'll talk about like where this picks up. So it picks up after the Aldani heist, and that was the big sort of climax of that arc. And 
a lot of stuff happened and a lot of people died. And I think there was a lot of, at least on my part, and I know from other fans from reading what people were thinking and hearing and talking to some people, there was this thought that maybe the deaths that he experienced on the team, because we all knew Nemec was not going to make it. So maybe it was maybe Nemec's death that would maybe propel him a bit towards, you know, understanding the cause and believe becoming a believer, like it put him on the road to that. So when this episode begins with essentially him doing that thing he's been doing since the beginning, which is just to run, take the money and run. I was like, I sat up and was like, oh, okay. So we're not going to go down the most obvious road. This is interesting. So where is this taking us? And as it played out, it made me think about, it, it recontextualized the scenes in Rogue One between him and Jen Erso. When he is, when they're having their disagreement and he, he says to her, oh, so now the rebellion is real for you? I've been in this fight since I was six years old. Um, he said, some of us don't have the luxury of deciding when and where we care about something. And I thought, well, now that I think about that speech and I think, man, this has completely recontextualized that for me because now instead of him like just being, you know, pissed off at her because she's she's not a believer or she's somehow had this privileged life that he hasn't had. I think he's projecting in that scene because he was totally that person. He was her at what at this time in his life. That's what I was going to say. Like he sees himself in her and it's one of those situations where like it, or it has to irk him because he knows what he was like. And I like that this episode is him doing what he's always done because he runs face first into the consequences of his actions and the results of the empire. You've got, you know, the imperial authority is now on Ferrix. He has to leave Marva. He, uh, at the end, he gets arrested because of a change of guidelines that happened because of what he did on Aldani. The stuff, uh, you know, Marva joining the rebellion is the consequence of him on Aldani, even though she doesn't yeah. know it. And yeah. so this thing that he did just for the money is now having all of these really negative consequences for him. And I think it'll be interesting to see as he learns, as I'm imagining he's going to, that like you can't just sit back and as Jin said, you know, it's not a problem if you don't look up. He he knows that when you don't look up, everybody around you gets hurt. And so I see Andor, Cassian Andor now, as a character who's fighting not as much because he believes in the rebellion, but because he knows the cost of not fighting and the cost of running. And he figures that if there's going to be a cost and he's going to lose people, he might as well do it for a cause. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the show does a great job of showing cause and effect and consequence in a really inventive way. Mm-hmm. Like, like you, all those ways that you mentioned about how his actions have rippled out and had this effect on people around him. It now makes me think, okay, so thinking that he would be 
maybe moved by being around Nim- somebody like Nimick, who had this, you know, pure idealism and the idealism of youth, and he was kind of this innocent. And then seeing him like shot down, like that would be the thing that would inspire him. But no, they're actually going at it from a, a much more interesting direction, which is just have Cassian start down that road to maybe to make amends for all the ways that he caused some of this. Like this is like his way of fighting the empire is to sort of try to undo some of this chaos that he brought into people's lives. Yeah. The, the scene with Clem running out to stop the protest really stands Uh, out to me because that's when Cassian first sees the cost of rebelling. Right. Yeah. And now he is being reminded of that cost and it's, with Clem, obviously, you know, it, it's a horrible situation. But as far as the story is concerned, that affects Marva and Cassian, right? It's not as wide of a, a birth of people who are affected by that death. Whereas with what we're seeing in the show, he's affecting everybody in every aspect of his life. And so he's being reminded of that cost of of rebelling. And it's, I mean, it, it has to have an impact on him. So I like, I like kind of the my name is Earl version of Andor where he's going around trying to, you know, make amends for all of the people that he hurt. And eventually he realizes that he can't make up for what has happened in the past. He can only handle what's going forward. Right. And to me, that adds a lot to that scene with him right where he's about to shoot uh, Galen Erso, because all of that has to be playing back in his mind and what he sees of himself in Jin. Uh, and the man that he was and what would what he would have done if that had happened to to his father uh, right has to just it has to punch him in the gut yeah that's a really good point about making that that comparison between um, Jen's father and his father I think his the way I read this the scene with Clem was it was even for me it went beyond. Cassian seeing firsthand the cost of rebellion because Clem wasn't even rebelling. He was just, in fact, he was trying to stop the protesters and he just was singled out as being part of, there, there was no distinction made between him and the other protesters. And I think that's what caused Cassian to say, you know, it's not worth even getting involved oh, like one way or the other, like not even rebelling, but not even like, you know, just don't get involved, like escape and run from it if you can. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely think you're, you're onto something there. And, you know, the way I read the scene is Clem is, you know, like you said, being lumped in with that group. So he's seen as a rebel, not necessarily that, Cassian thinks he is rebelling but just even if you get that perception of a rebel which is it's kind of interesting to think about because Cassian is a rebel in his own way at the beginning you know by trying not to be a rebel he's a rebel he's stealing from the empire he's you know doing things to give to uh, this network even though he he doesn't know exactly where everything's going um so it's interesting to think about that line uh everybody has their own rebellion and to think that like cassian has always had his own rebellion he just wasn't conscious of it and this is kind of 
that rebirth to the consciousness of uh, what it is to be a rebel and how that can look in in many different facets. I want to specifically, while we're talking about the Cassian portion, to talk about that scene between him and Marva. There are a couple of scenes, but particularly the one where he comes back the next day to try to take her away. And they have that conversation. And I don't know about you, but I that was one of the most emotional scenes I've seen in Star Wars in a long time. It was very, very... Uh, it was tragic in a lot of ways and heartbreaking in a lot of ways because there was so much that Cassian could and should say that he didn't. Um, the fact that, you know, Marva was inspired by something he did to completely change her view or, you know, her point of view. And she tells that story about how she's avoided walking through the square because that's where Clem's body hung. But after hearing about the Aldani raid, she's inspired to put on her best coat and walk right through the square. Like it's, it changed something in her and yet he can't, share that that's something he played a part in because he himself doesn't believe that his role was he's not seeing it through her eyes you see what i'm saying he's not no no no, absolutely he he definitely has blinders on like he can't see situations from other people's perspectives he it it was the same at the beginning with uh with bix like he doesn't think of how his actions are going to affect other people it's just kind of how is this going to get me to the next thing you know that i need to do yeah, and, and and she she gives this wonderfully impassioned speech. I, I love the line about where he says, well, we'll go somewhere they haven't ruined yet. And she said, well, it already exists. It's in my head. Like, mm, that's one of yes. the best lines. Uh, <laughs> I was just like, oh, my God, goosebumps. I, um, I honestly wish this scene hadn't taken place in this episode purely for the fact that, like, all of this episode is full of just great conversations between people. You mm-hmm. have, you know, the ISB, you have Luthen and Mon Mothma, um, even Cyril and his mom, which I, I'd say that Marva and, and Cassian is better, but Cyril and his mom is an interesting, like, conversation dynamic back and forth and, and reading the body language and everything like that. But yeah. this was, was really, really good, and I would have liked it in another episode because I think people would be talking about it a little bit more than, than they are now because, yeah, it it is gut-wrenching, and you... A lot of times with the whole what is not said situation, it either has to be very obvious or you have to sit with it for a while to go, hmm, he should have said that or they could have said that. With this, it's not even trying to figure out what they could have said. The way that it's written, the pacing, the way the actors deliver it, you just feel the hollowness. And it doesn't matter what's missing. You just know the most important part is missing. Yeah, they're they're just they're not connecting, and and they're trying hard to connect. You know, he's trying to implore her to leave with him, and she's trying to make him understand why leaving would be the worst thing for her mentally. Like she's come to this point in her life where she has to stay and she has to fight. It's the one thing she must do before she dies, if he, even if it is the thing that kills her. She has to do this thing, and after that impassioned speech, she's like. I just want you to understand. And he just goes, I don't. And the, the pain in her eyes. Oh my God. That, that, that scene where she just said, 
well, one day you will. And it was just this hopeful, it was, this, it was half hopeful and half, I don't know if he will, but I really want him to. Yeah. And it's, God, it was just so good. Well, and you've got me in the, the mindset of how does this recontextualize Rogue One? It's kind of like he becomes Marva in that moment when he collects all the rebels to go to Scarif and, you know, mm, says, yeah. welcome home to Jin." Like, he he goes on that journey that Marva is on. And Jin doesn't go into that rebel briefing room to inspire Cassian. At that point, they're, they're kind of at odds with each other. Uh, she goes in there because it's the right thing to do. Um, and Cassian's inspired by that. And so he kind of gives the same speech to Jin, which is interesting because for Cassian, it was kind of the opposite. He was going there selfishly, not to inspire anyone, can't tell anyone, and yet it still leads to that result. So it's kind of like there's a a setup of here's the ways things can go wrong that we're getting in Andor, and in, in Rogue One is where he kind of does the same things but gets to the right solution. So you kind of see that he he already knows these things are going to happen. I can't avoid these things happening in life. They're the death and taxes of Star Wars. What can I do to turn this situation around so that it can be used for something that's going to be good and helpful and not harm the people that I care about? Yeah, yeah. I think that's why it was important to have that scene on Neomos because that was a cold splash of seawater in his face to, to wake him up to, you know, he used that line earlier um, where he's telling Marva that he wants to find some place that's warm and easy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, cut to space, Florida, planet, Florida. Um, he's gone to the, you know, to, to, to live on the beach and, you know, drink rag ragnock or whatever it was called or pivos or pvs i don't know what what they were talking about but i don't either um but can we just like stop for a minute though and talk about like diego luna looks like rock solid (laughs) he's he's been hitting the gym and i i certainly appreciate that he's he certainly is easy on the eyes i stopped i was like dang diego okay (laughs) <laughs> and I continue on the show. Continue. Sorry, I thought that was important to know. It's always important. Um, <laughs> uh, Kylo, Kylo Ren, eat your heart out. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we need like a what, the best shirtless scene in Star Wars. It's just the two of them. No, uh, no, we uh, who I, wore it better? <laughs> who wore? Who, who didn't wear it better? <laughs> who didn't wear it better? <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's any others. Is there any, any other shirtless Not scenes that I can in think Star of. Wars? The, the only other one I can think of, the closest, I mean, I guess the closest would be like Leia in the bikini, but that seems like a, a cheap uh, <laughs> option to use. Luke uh, running around and flipping on Dagobah where you're like, Mark Hamill's got his, his arm game. Is yeah, he's in a muscle muscle shirt in that one. Yeah, yeah, that's. What, <laughs> but it's kind of thin, so you know it's kind of as close as we get. But yeah, no, yeah. no, I I loved that line about out of the damp and cold somewhere go somewhere warm and easy because warm and easy. 
it one, it's an allusion to uh, Scarif because Scarif was nice and warm and easy uh, before yeah. Cassian got there. But yeah. more importantly, I think it's a, a line that kind of makes me feel comfortable saying that this story is going to see him emerging as uh, the rebel that we know. And like, that's a, it's a weird situation. I guess it would be better to say in a way that I'm going to find satisfying is we're going to see him become that rebel in a very satisfying way because it's kind of like, you know, uh, evolution, you know, fish and uh, sea life turned into amphibians, which evolved into, you know, you had this cause and effect um, that happened. And that's kind of what that line alludes to for me. And then to come all the way around to the end and he goes somewhere warm and easy and it's interesting because even in the writing, they 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 trick us about what's about to happen because you have the K2 droid uh, uh-huh. start walking up. And I know everybody collectively just sat up like, oh, my God, is this happening already? <laughs> uh, and it's not. It's not. And Cassian has gone somewhere warm and easy. And is that happening already? He just gets to live on a beach now? Nope. Nope. He is going to jail. Yeah, and I love that he got dragged out of the kangaroo court screaming, I'm just a tourist. <laughs> that was so darkly funny to me. I don't yeah. know why, but there was something like really darkly humorous about him thinking, like just, I guess, desperate at that point that this shouldn't count because I'm only here on vacation. Like the Empire does not care who's on vacation. Yeah. Like, that's, that's why they are... The Empire. (laughs) Well, and then to get six years because of his own actions, you know, it's kind kind of like... I literally did, what? I just said, what? Yeah. (laughs) It said six years. Well, and that... I mean, we're going to get some kind of prison break because Rogue One is five years after this, so mathematically he cannot be in prison for the full six years so that'll be interesting to find out but as chirrut says uh some some of us carry our prisons with us and one of those people uh to me is one of the surprising interests that i have in this show is cyril karn he kind of uh is a is a lame duck in the beginning um he's kind of just moving along uh, a duck on the pond, it looks on the outside like everything's calm, but inside he is just tormented uh, by the potential of what we find out to be being a nobody, which is who he becomes in this episode. And I really like the introduction uh, of this episode with him staring at a lightless sky, because the last time we saw him in his bedroom, uh, he had light shining down on him, uh, which kind of made me go, okay, he's got some hope. Maybe this is a redemption or maybe it's just a sign that uh, this is going to set him on uh, whatever path of growth he needs to go on in this story. And here it was like, oh no, all the hope is actually gone. That was his last glance of of the light of hope. And he is trapped now as the consequences of his own actions. Yeah, um, the the thing with the window, the way I re- read the window scenes, I think in the earlier episode, 
Because it's dark at first, and then he looks up and he sees the sun appear from like you know, pat, it looks like it's passing by a, a skyscraper. But because he's so far deep down into the recesses of the city, and so and there's so many you know buildings around him, I think that's like the one moment in the day that he can actually see the sun, and so he only mm. sees it for a few moments, and then it's gone. And so his, like you said, his existence is all in darkness. And this episode begins with him sitting there at that window, which to me suggests that this is a, a ritual he does every day to wait on the sun so he can see it just for those first brief moments. And then he's back in the darkness and he goes on and carries on with the drudgery of his life. Um, but did you notice in his room he has uh, Stormtrooper action figures? I did notice that. I did. Um, one of them, I think, is is a clone trooper, but I, I don't have a, a close enough one to zoom in on. But that would be yeah. pretty interesting. Because uh, he, like, I don't know if he wants to necessarily be a part of the Empire. Um, I, don't, I don't think he particularly, at this point, cares about the Empire. Uh, because otherwise he would have been going after that probably a long time ago instead of sitting around on Primor. I think he wants somewhere where he can be a leader and he doesn't know if he can do it. Maybe he doesn't know if he can do it in the empire, uh, but he definitely didn't do it with Primor and his failure made him just one of the masses, which had, I mean, as far as we can tell, like insignificance is his greatest fear. Uh, he has grown up in a life that has told him he is nothing but insignificant, so it's understandable. But he's always doing these little things like tailoring his uniform, tailoring his suit just a little bit to only wear somebody who knew what it looked like before, like his mom, would be able to, to notice. But he's doing anything he can to set himself apart and at the end, to just see him in a cubicle with a space tie, uh, I mean, that's, that really brings him to his knees. Yeah, I, I, I think with his mom, in, in a lot of ways, I see like his choice to wear a brown suit that day was as much about him trying to do some little thing to stand out in you know feel you know from this feeling of being insignificant but uh, he's also doing it perhaps because he knows his mom won't approve so there's like these little microaggressions that he's doing uh, towards her <laughs> that you know he'll sit there and he'll eat the breakfast that she fixes every day which is the same cereal and the same blue milk um, and he'll sit there and and suffer her her, you know, degrading comments and humiliating uh, put downs and and harsh, overly harsh critiques. Um, <clears throat> but he'll he'll do these have these little moments where he tries to rebel a little bit. But going back to something that you said earlier, I, I think that you hit on it. He he, I don't think he thinks that he is enough of a somebody to be anybody in the empire. I think that's the reason he was with that corporation was because he felt like he could be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And that was perhaps his road to achieving this leadership role and this quest for order within a smaller sphere 
than in the Empire because once he is back on Coruscant, you know, in the thick of it again, he just disappears as, a, as just a nameless, faceless person um, who just gets lost in the city. And that's why his story is really fascinating to me because in any other Star Wars story, his story would have ended after the first arc. We wouldn't have seen him again. It would have been like, well, that was his downfall and he, you know, yeah, he messed up and he got fired. Um, <clears throat> but to have it follow him and just watch him sort of sink further and further into oblivion and into, in, you know, um, obscurity, um, that's why I want to see where this goes. Because he does reiterate what his objective is, which is to clear his name. And I do think his path will cross again with Cassian's. Um, it's something about Cyril that I think they're perhaps alluding to is that Cyril is one of these people who blames everyone else for his problems. Mm -hmm. Like he is, he is in his station in life because he has an overbearing mother or because, um, the, the lax standards at his previous job. Because or of his be uncle's status his, that we don't Yeah, his, his uncle. Um, or this guy named Cassian, who was the one who set it all in motion and, and screwed up his life. He's going to blame everything on, on anyone else but himself. Um, and that is kind of typical of a certain mindset that tends to, um, I don't know, sort of go towards fascism. Is that you always want to have somebody to blame for why things aren't working the way you think they should work. And imposing your idea of order onto others um, sort of comes from that feeling of feeling insignificant or powerless and feeling a need or uh, a compulsion to inflict power, power over others. So I, I, I'm not saying that's where he's headed because I don't think he's, his story is going to intersect with the Empire per se, but he's definitely one of these people that lives in the galaxy who condones what the Empire is doing. Yeah. Because it, it aligns with his worldview. I like the idea that uh, Cyril tailoring his suit is like me putting Eminem CDs into like Garth Brooks and Bon Jovi CD cases. <laughs> um, but no, I, what I want with Cyril is I want him to not join the Rebellion nor the Empire. Yeah, I don't want to see him join either one. Like, at least in the end. Um, it's... This show, as you pointed out earlier, is not doing the obvious things. And the obvious thing is he's going to reconcile, or not even reconcile, but concile, uh, with Cassian and become a rebel and they're going to, you know, or he'll sacrifice himself to save Cassian for a higher purpose or something like that. And I don't want to see that. I want to see their paths cross again. I think it would be kind of weird if we were following him around in the Andor show and they never... Pass, uh, cross paths again, but I don't want to see a uh, a callous type situation where he becomes an important part of the rebellion, uh, and he's you know all sins are forgiven and everybody's friends now. Those stories are great, and I enjoy them, and they make sense in Star Wars. But if we're in this arena where we are saying we're not going to do things the way that uh, we've done them before, don't tell the same story. Um, and I think that that. I don't know how you do that. It's a very wide uh, umbrella to, to 
put Cyril under. Uh, but phew, with the way this is written, if some show is going to do it, this is the show to do it. Yeah, and I think that this episode already lays the groundwork for how that would would not happen the way that you said you don't want to see it. Like, I don't think he's going to be redeemed. I don't think he's going to join the Rebellion or the Empire. Because um, the one thing he does to try and stand out and be a little bit of an individual is choosing his brown suit in the beginning. But the way this episode ends with him in his job, new job, at the Bureau of Standards, he's wearing the, the boring gray Bureau of Standards suit. So it shows that he's he he's ultimately any attempts to express any kind of individuality are moot for him because he's not going to follow through with it. He doesn't have the character or the ambition to follow that through. So I but 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 where it's headed in regards to how he comes back in line with Cassian is what I'm the most interested to see how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Cyril kind of breaks the rules and it doesn't go well for him because, as you said, he doesn't take responsibility for his own actions. He it, it, it he's kind of incapable of putting where he is in scope with reality. He can only see where he wants to be, and you have to have that self-awareness to be able to go from where you are to where you want or need to be. And the opposite of that is is Deidre Miro from the ISB. Like, she knows where she is, and she knows where she wants to go. And so because of that self-awareness and her ability to think from other points of views and perspectives, which Cyril can't, uh, she's able to see from the rebel side, and so she is able to break the appropriate rules in the right way at the right time to get her from point A to point B. And I would, I would be lying if I said that she was not my favorite part of the show so far. <laughs> like I, I want hour-long episodes where we are just in the ISB room while they're meeting. Like, mm-hmm. it, yeah. It's, I think it's as close to West Wing as we're going to get. So, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Absolutely. I, I, I'm just, um, I'm giggling because I, I wrote in my notes, she's a Nazi, but I can't help but admire her thoroughness. <laughs> 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 I mean, you just can't. I mean, I guess because of the way that they've so uh, expertly set up the office politics of where she works, you can't help but root for her because she's surrounded by so many more, you know, despicable people. Um, and they're all playing games with each other, but she, she's not playing games. She's not focused on, um, her, she, her ambition is that she wants to further the goals of the empire. She's not interested in furthering her own career path because she's had opportunities to, climb the ladder and step on people to get where she's going. But she ends up where she is at the end of this episode because she simply spoke up for herself in the meeting and Partigas, I think that's his name. Partigas decided to reward her for it. Um, But the thing that, the thing that I, what I like the most about her is that she, 
is perhaps the series' most dangerous character. Mm. Um, now, a close second would probably be Luthen, but I, I think I'm going to have to give it to Deidre because she is clearly the smartest person in that room at the ISB. Um, the fact that she's able to point out the uh, the weaknesses within the imperial system of having sectors and how these rivalries between the supervisors who control the sectors is what allows the rebels to pass between the sectors and have perhaps a base camp in one sector and then hit a target in another sector and then run back to a different sector to hide. You know, it's because these sectors don't get along with one another and the rebels are using that to their advantage and she's the first person to spot this. And that's the reason I think Partagas was impressed by her because it was his system. He designed it. Like it was his, he was the, the, the um, architect of it. And yet she's able to point out its flaws and why it might be aiding the rebellion. And I think because either he sees her as perhaps a, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? A, not a, not opposite of mentor, student, pupil. Yeah. A- an ISB Padawan. Yeah, like like there's either he admires her or he's looking to take credit and he just wants to groom the most smartest person in the room so that they will provide him with all the intel that he needs to advance his career. I don't know what his motivations are, but um that yeah, that's that that's one of the reasons why I like her. Also, the main reason I like her is that she she was concerned about keeping her assistant too late. <laughs> Oh, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, come on. When your boss says, I don't want you to stay too late, let just go on home. Like, that's the best feeling. It's nice to have a boss that'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> she may be a fascist, but she's a good boss. She cares about her employees. Yeah, so that counts for something. <laughs> Deidre just really has a plan about everything that she does. She doesn't do anything just off the the cuff or because she sees an opportunity to to knock someone down a peg whether politically or through ego like everything she does is calculated and it's interesting that she presents this idea of these artificially constructed boundaries because it doesn't like you're in a room full of extremely intelligent people and it hadn't occurred to anybody before but also, as Star Wars fans, like, how had we never thought of this before? How had this never come up in stories before? Like, it is such an obvious tool to use, and it hasn't been. Uh, and to me, that even adds a little bit more to uh, my respect to the character and the character development and uh, the acting and how all of that was sold and put together. She, she understands how the rebels think, which is bad for the rebels. I was like going to say, the, it's terrifying. It's, it really is kind of terrifying. Um, and there's a nice little parallel also with that, because, and we'll get to Mon Mothma in a bit, but there's that thing about with Mon Mothma at the party, which we'll talk about, where she alludes to she's been studying Palpatine. No. And, and so I had this, like, I'm just thinking of Miro, like she knows, she's been, she knows how a rebellion will form because she thinks of how 
it's, it's this weirdly perverse thing where she's thinking about all the ways to bring down the Empire, but she doesn't want to bring down the Empire. Does that make sense? It's like this to weird... know your enemy. Yeah, well, but to it's... To defeat your enemy, you must first know them. Yeah, and, and it's, it's like she has to think in terms of somebody who wants to see the, the Empire brought down. <clears throat> so she has to get into that mindset and yet retain her, you know, her iron grip on you know, the, the empire's ideals at the same time. So that's, that's an interesting dichotomy to have in, in somebody's head. Well, and it, it makes them very dangerous, uh, whether that's, you know, a good or bad thing. The story is kind of making us decide because Deidre is like, she's able to think from the rebels point of view. And that line that you're talking about with Mon Mothma is showing that she's able to think from an Imperial point of view. And that makes them dangerous to their opposing sides. And uh, it's just, it's cool to have, you know, these two women who are powerhouses in this series and in, uh, you know, what's developing in the Star Wars galaxy overall and, and all of that. But it's especially cool to just see these two women who are such reflections of each other and the actresses are able without saying anything or doing anything out of the ordinary to make it overbearing. They're able to convey that to the audience, uh, without words, without anything else, just in the way that they present the way that they, uh, interact with others and, and things like that, you know, like Deidre has to trust her assistant to keep, you know, things secret. She, you know, demands it from the, uh, uh, the attendant that she's getting the documents from, like all of these things, she keeps a tight circle the same way that, that Mon Mothma does. And that circle only expands when absolutely necessary. Yeah. She, she understands how to balance fear and respect. Like she knows exactly what mixture will get the best results. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's something we've seen from from characters like Tarkin and and stuff that uh, even you know as as much of a problem as I have with some of the Thrawn books like Thrawn, that's what makes him a leader that people want to follow is that mixture of fear and respect and uh, it's it's a very dangerous uh, thing to have and and uh, if it's if it's not used. Uh, for moral reasons, it can lead to some very, very bad ends. But one character that that uh, is is using it for what we would call moral uh, means is Mon Mothma, you know, uh, and her her story here, you know, which crosses over with Luthen. But Luthen is kind of the the side piece on this episode is really uh, focused on. Mon Mothma, and I was surprised to find out that she didn't know about Aldani. Mm, yeah, it's to me, it's becoming more and more clear every time that they speak to each other. I get the distinct impression that she and Luthan neither like nor trust each other very much. Um, they're reluctant allies who recognize each other's gifts and abilities to aid the rebellion, but both are at odds with each other at this very personal and fundamental level, which comes out. In, in the shop when she is sort of taken aback by how brazen Luthen has, has been with Aldani and how 
in her mind, reckless he's been because of how much it will escalate the conflict. And, and her first thought is all the people who will be hurt as a result of this. And so it's like their two viewpoints are in such stark opposition in that scene because she's, she's worried about how, who, who this will hurt and he's worried about not succeeding. And so they're coming at, you know, butting up against each other, these two forces. But what I like about that scene is the way Luthen suggests that she's perhaps not being completely honest because she, on some level, knew that this was where this was headed. And that's what I find really interesting about Mon Mothma is that she... She does seem to be like any scene she's in, she just sort of she has this light about her. She's like she's obviously very smart, very intelligent, and very um uh crafty in her the way she's sort of hiding from the empire. But at the same time you get a sense that I get a sense that there's you know, there's there's something else coming that we're gonna find out, I'm pretty sure, about Mon Mothma that maybe suggests that she is a little little bit more like Luthen than she wants to admit that she is. Yeah, I mean, to me, Luthen in this episode was a lot like Saw Gerrera. You know, he, he has that line, we need fear, we need them to overreact. He wants people to suffer in order to create the rebellion because he thinks it will, uh, you know, ignite the spark uh, to bring the Empire down, and he's willing to sacrifice... Uh, people, which we've known before, but he makes very clear to Mon Mothma he's willing to sacrifice people. He's willing to do whatever it takes to make this rebellion work and that it's not going to be easy. And we get the same thing with Saw. So if you think about, you know, the fact that what we're seeing right now lines up with season one of uh, Star Wars Rebels, a year or two uh, later, she is, you know, speaking to the hologram of Saw Gerrera, and there is no pulling punches. There is no hiding behind uh, veils and secret languages. Like, they are going at each other because Mon Mothma has dealt with the deception and, and all of that before and has worked with someone who was willing to win at whatever cost, you know, uh, and she's not willing to do that again. And she's drawing that line in the sand. And I'm kind of seeing the, the potential of her learning that lesson from Luthen that she later applies to Saul Guerrera because she's seeing kind of the same traits uh, in both men. Yeah, the thing that's fascinating to me about both Luthen and Saw is that we're conditioned to think that their extreme view is the wrong view and in the framework of the morals and the and the you know the the what do you call it the I guess just morals of the story that you learn in Star Wars is that you know the dark side can creep in and in a lot of unexpected places, even on the good side. So somebody who thinks they're doing good can actually turn to the dark side and cause more suffering and harm as a result. And that's certainly true, but there is a glimmer of truth in what they say. In Mm -hmm. that if you are not willing to go far enough or dirty your hands, you're going to lose. So you might 
think, well, at least I didn't compromise my integrity or my beliefs, but you also lost. So which is it going to be? Like, and that's not an unrealistic way to look at it. No, so that's it's kind not of, at all. It's the most yeah. realistic way to look at it. That's what makes it so sticky. And that's mm-hmm. what makes it uncomfortable because we do have to ask those questions. Like how far are we willing to go to beat a foe that has no compunction about breaking rules and hurting people? Like how do we defeat that kind of enemy? Um, that's why anytime there's war, there's really no good and bad side. There's just war is just going to be brutal and bloody and horrible and people will do horrible things. Um, It's inevitable, but I guess that's why I have stories like star Wars because they can tell these kinds of, we can explore these issues in maybe a more sanitized way or more, you know, in a more of the realm of fantasy. Um, But it's this, this show is diving deeper, deep and deeper into that question in ways that I haven't seen in a long time. And it's really very exciting. Yeah. I mean, we do get some of it with Saw Gerrera in Rebels and that little arc that he has with Ezra, uh, where Ezra is kind of starting to go down that path of what does it matter as long as we win, you know, as he wants to get back to Lothal. And then he kind of learns from that, from uh, spending time with Saw. But the difference is like audiences matter in this situation as much as i love the animated shows and rebels is is top notch like you're not going to be able to go as far as this live action tv show is going to be able to go uh we've already seen that like the death of tim like just getting shot in cold blood like that's not going to happen uh in an animated show where you see it that violently and that's not to say that the violence is uh, necessarily a good or bad thing or that the story needs it or doesn't need it. It's just it. We're, we have the potential to see more of the cost uh, in a way that kind of sticks with us uh, because we see the, the, the flesh of it, you know? We see the humanity of it and that's the that's the thing about war is you demonize and you other the the opposition because you need to have that separation uh from that other human being in order to be able to to commit the heinous acts that you have to commit to win a war and i mean neither of us have ever been to war but i can i mean i could only imagine how how insanely challenging that is and and particularly how insanely unhealthy it is, you know, which we've, we've seen the result of over the past decades. And to think that, you know, we have these same characters in Star Wars and even in the instance of Luthen and Saw, these characters that create more of these types of people is a very uh, interesting dynamic to have and intriguing dynamic to have in a world and in a galaxy that started with these are the bad guys these are the good guys like the colors tell you everything to this level of nuance shows the capacity of star wars to grow but also our conversations within and around star wars to grow which excites me a lot the part of of mon mothma's story in this episode that i i like the most we've alluded to it already <clears throat> was uh, the dinner party scene where she meets uh, mm. with her friend Tay, who's so the banker. Good. And 
The reason I like this scene so much is because throughout the series so far, we've seen Mon basically being on her heels the whole time. Like she's either reacting to um, the fact that she's being surveilled so closely um, or she's responding to, you know, with an exasperation at the news that she's going to have a dinner party, that her husband's throwing a dinner party and inviting all of her enemies. Um, or she's, she's dealing with Luthen where she's at odds with him to a certain degree, but then she, she has this party and she meets with her friend and there's this comfort level there and she feels like she can open up to him and we see a different side of her, which is this brilliant strategist. And I just, I love the part where he's she's trying to explain to him where she's going with this. And he, he says, I don't understand. And she said, and she smiles. She says, of course you don't. And I love that little moment because it's like, she's so pleased to hear that he doesn't understand because it means that her cloak is working like mm-hmm. her, like she is, her facade is doing what it's, she designed it to do, which is to make people think that she is an irritation and not a threat. Um, and that's like that little moment of seeing a glimpse into what will eventually make her a brilliant leader of the Rebel Alliance is that she is a expert strategist, um, <clears throat> is in complete command of that situation. She knows that she knows the room. She knows exactly how far away she is from the person's ear who needs to hear this the least. And so she chooses where she says things and how she says them. Um, how she appears. She keeps reminding him to smile. I love that. Like, it's like she's done this a, a lot. So it's she's like such giving a him good tips. Addition. Yeah. You there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, you brought, you cut out for a second. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. And, and I love that we, one, we see them when they start this conversation, and this is one of the things that one of the Easter egg videos pointed out. You see them walk past this glass that has like a spiderweb design on it as oh, they yeah. are are getting entangled uh, together. But the line, you know, that I think has stood out to everybody, I've learned from Palpatine, I show you the stone in my hand so you miss the knife at your throat. Yeah. We're seeing that in action in the show. And... We've always thought of Mon Mothma as, in in most ways, a benevolent leader. You know, the the quiet spokesman for the rebellion. Uh, and so, it's not that that's a, a bad character, but it's not a, a character you can do a lot with. It's not super interesting uh-huh. uh, to just have, you know, this plain beacon of, of hope, which is... She was supposed to be the, you know, the calm in Return of the Jedi, and, and she did uh, her job there, and, you know, where we get her sprinkled in other places, we kind of had that same character, and here, we're getting to peel back the layers and go, oh, that's part of her, but it was also kind of a mask, uh, mm-hmm. and... I'm excited personally being, you know, such a huge Star Wars Rebels fan to go back and watch her scenes there and think about these conversations that she's had and uh, 
how that character has evolved because I'm thinking particularly about when she has to talk to uh, Ezra about Lothal and how they can't send them there because there's so many other planets uh, that are in greater need and we can't just sacrifice it all on one thing because that's what we we th- uh, you know want to do. We have to do what's right in the long game. She's able to have this very blunt conversation with Ezra, who she has just started to know. Whereas before with with Tay, she had to have a very cloaked conversation with somebody she's known since childhood. And so you can kind of see in just like the difference in her approach of. Uh, building the relationships with these characters like how she has progressed and how in a much more positive way than palpatine she's gone the same direction of having to be more cloak and dagger uh to hide her true self to being able to to realize uh her true self and let that you know stand at the front of of the rebellion uh to ironically stand across from from palpatine who uh, showed his hand in uh, in the prequels. Yeah, I'm now when I'm when I'm thinking about it, because um, I'm now tracing my memory to see. Okay, so sh- Bale must have known. I mean, Bale obviously knew that Palpatine was a Sith Lord. So does she know that he's a Sith Lord? Um. Mm. I don't think we know based on canon, uh, but because I would whole, imagine the whole dichotomy of of Palpatine being a hidden Sith and how she studied him, and it, so it, it raises to me it raises the question of just how much she knew about him because. And it could be simply that she did, doesn't need to know that he's a Sith to be able to just understand that he was a duplicitous, you know, had two-faced, um, you know, the stone and the knife analogy. Like, that's what she studied about him. Um, but it is a nice parallel to see that she is kind of the light side version of Palpatine in this, like, dichotomy of having two sides and having the one side that she shows the public and the other side where she's working in secret with all these plans. It's very much. She's like the mirror version of Palpatine, only just the light side version. Yeah. It's really, really cool. And I, I think, you know, we, we definitely got some of that, uh, in, in terms of the light side opposition of Palpatine in Yoda in, uh, revenge of the Sith, uh, and then, you know, throughout the original trilogy, but to see it with the political side of things is really, really exciting. And I mean, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday after watching the show, just just it's insane how quickly Genevieve O'Reilly just took over the role of Mon Mothma to the uh-huh. point where like you cannot possibly imagine anybody else playing her and to think it all came from a deleted scene that everybody actually wanted in the movie and <laughs> to this you know uh, you know she gets small roles in Rogue One and then you know she's voices in Rebels and, and it spawns into this and now it's it's almost like the actress from Return of the Jedi, uh, whose name I'm, I'm blanking on right now, she replaced Genevieve O'Reilly instead of I the know. other way around. It's yeah. wild. It is wild. And you know that, I mean, if Lucas were still in charge, he would totally replace 
<laughs> he'd go in and put Genevieve in that scene in Return of the Jedi. Oh, absolutely. He totally would do that. And I don't know whether I like myself or hate myself for going, I kind of want it. Well, the wrong, the wrong answer is, yeah, he should do it. But the, the answer I like the most is he should do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, which is, gives us a very difficult choice like so many of our characters in the show are facing. So we, uh, we kind of have this standalone episode. Mark, you have anything else to add on here that we haven't had a uh, chance to cover? Uh, no, only that I just have no idea where this is headed. Me like, either. And, I'm and so it's, excited. It's so nice. It's it's even though this is a show where we ultimately know where the story ends, th- it takes so many left and right turns and goes down rabbit holes you don't expect it to do, and in ways you don't expect that the journey to get there is so interesting, and I'm so grateful that it's it's been approached this way because that's. The criticism that people always have about a prequel story is that it's devoid of tension because you know how it ends. And I've always maintained that if if it's told the right way, it shouldn't matter if you know how it ends. It's the journey to get there that becomes the focus of the story. Yeah, 100%. And I kind of hate like the we know where it ends argument just because like we know where a character dies. Because there are so many stories within a, within a person's life, you know? It's like... Sure, that's where his life ends in Rogue One, but this is, even though it's, you know, of course, obviously part or, part of a grander uh, scope, this story is a different story than Rogue One, and so it's going to have an ending that we can't, nor should we be able to predict. Uh, there is just as much of a chance that he doesn't join the rebellion by the end of the show and and he gets to some other end and we go well wait a minute how does he join the rebellion and that's a different story like we literally have no idea we just have these expectations because we know where a character dies and so go on the ride people is what i'm really trying to say well said so we will, of course, uh, on the network here, be covering uh, Andor, as I said, uh, covering 8, 9, and 10, and then uh, 11 and 12. It's crazy that season one of Andor is uh, about halfway over, but we still have over a month worth of uh, television, so that's going to be uh, pretty exciting. And then, Mark, over on Forever Star Wars, you will do a, uh, a season wrap-up show, right? I'll do a season wrap-up show. Um, I was going to have a guest. I now am going to have two guests. So it may end up being a roundtable. And not only that, I may end up having to do several episodes (laughs) to cover all of everything that's in this show. Um, Because honestly, like we've spent over an hour talking about one episode and... You know, uh, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. There, there's going to be a lot of um, Andor content coming up in Forever Star Wars. Yeah, and, and just a- across the whole network, it's going to be a lot of fun. So just make sure you are subscribed wherever you are listening, and uh, help other people find us by leaving a rating and review. Uh, your review can just say Mark is better than Brandon, and. It- <laughs> I think it automatically populates five stars if you do that, so it's great. Um, and, of course, you know, over on our social medias, at Classic Savers, our Patreon, uh, to help us put Star Wars books into classrooms. 
And all of those links are available for you in the show notes. So with that said, uh, Mark, I'm glad I got to talk to you tonight. I love talking to you about Andor, uh, but I love talking to you more about Batch 8. Hi-oh. Right on time. <laughs> See, if Drew was going to listen to this, I, I would say, ha, I got you, Drew. But now he has to listen. We're, we're going to know whether he listened to the end or not. I guess we'll find out, won't we? All Clashing Sabers productions are the intellectual property of the Clashing Sabers Network and ClashingSabers.net. All licensed sounds and images are the property of their respective copyright holders and are used for informational and educational purposes only. For more information on our nonprofit or to nominate a teacher, go to ClashingSabers.net. For questions or inquiries, please email us at ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. You're just going to walk away?